As you're taking your seats, uh, go ahead and grab your Bibles and open them up to the book of Acts, chapter 15, kind of the end of chapter 15 we're looking at this morning. And as you're turning there, I hate to uh, remind you of this, but I I think summer is officially over, isn't it? Man. All right, um, be honest, a little moment of transparency here. How many of you are already thinking about your next vacation? Come on, all right. And the rest of you, the sermon is on lying this morning, so I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It's not... Did you know, uh, when we think about vacations, did you know that there aren't really any references to vacations in the Bible? It's interesting. <laughs> hold on, hold on, don't, don't throw stones yet, okay? <laughs> <We're gonna laughs> Actually, throughout all of history, um, vacations were seen as a luxury, and most people in all of human history haven't been able to, one, afford to take vacations, or they haven't had the leisure time available to take vacations. Most people throughout human history simply have been living day by day, trying to make a living and trying to stay alive each and every day. Uh, We live in blessed times, amen? (laughs) I I think... I'm thinking about vacations, I'm reminded about vacations because I think when we look at the Apostle Paul and we think about all that he's been going through, I think we could say that if anybody deserves a vacation, it was him. I mean, this guy has been pouring himself out for the cause of Jesus Christ and Paul has just finished his first missionary journey. We saw that in Acts chapter 14 and then Paul gets back to the church in Antioch and he's pouring himself out into the local church in Antioch and he's wrestling with the false teachers who are coming in trying to uh, distort the gospel and say that you need to have circumcision and keep the law to be saved and he goes to bat for the gospel, going to Jerusalem, traveling a far distance, you know, wrestling through that church council that we saw uh, in Acts chapter 15, and then he marches back to uh, Antioch, and he gives the message from the the council, and now one of the things I love about the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul has this huge, immense sense of urgency in his life, and he's always, he's always ready for more. He's just unstoppable. He can't slow down. He has to keep moving, pressing forward. And and you have to remember that the the journey, the first missionary journey he was on wasn't easy. It wasn't easy kind of being beaten up and persecuted, traveling through the Taurus mountains, you know, at risk of danger, floods, robbers, all kinds of things. I mean, stoned and left for dead, remember that? And yet here he is in our text this morning, ready to go, missionary journey number two. Paul's like, sign me up, when can we get out of here? It's just a reminder for my own heart this morning and I trust for you that in the Christian life there really aren't any vacations. Now I'm not opposed to vacations, okay, (laughs) let's just, In fact, I think they're really great. I think they're a blessing from the Lord, and I would say that we need a time away to be refreshed and recharged for the future work that God has called us to, but I just want you to think about this. In the absolute sense, we don't take vacations from our work in the Lord, do we? We're called to honor and serve Christ in all things. We're called, 1 Peter 3 says, that we're called to always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is within us, right? At all times, we're, we're never off duty. I remember, I remember one time hearing a pastor tell me that when he goes on vacation, he chooses not to think about the church or not to think about even biblical or spiritual things. He doesn't even want to evangelize anybody. He just wants to rest. And I couldn't help but thinking to myself, that is so anti-biblical, <laughs> 
It's so anti-Jesus Christ. It's so anti the Apostle Paul in this text. He understands in the Christian life, we are always, always serving the Lord and striving to see the mission move forward. Now listen, while we are not the Apostle Paul, we don't have his giftedness, we don't even have his particular and unique calling, I do believe we can look at the Apostle Paul as a great example He exemplifies for us what it means and what it looks like to have a missionary mindset, to keep moving forward, to always be ready for more. And I trust that, and my prayer has been that this would be our hearts as a people of God, as followers of Jesus Christ. We're always ready for the next thing the Lord has called us to. We're always pressing forward, moving the ball further down the field. And so as we look at God's word this morning, I want us to see that cultivating a missionary mindset first means this, I need a growing love for the church. I need a growing love for the church. And we're just gonna pick up, I just wanna read the very first verse for you and remind us of the Apostle Paul's heart for the church. Verse 36, you there with me? Let's go. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Again, we're reminded after some days is the phrase that Luke writes at the very beginning. Here's Paul. Remember all that he's gone through. Remember he's just gone to bat for the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's had that Jerusalem council and where they concluded that salvation was by grace alone. The whole battle, remember, that Paul was waging was for the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the life of the church. You see, if the gospel goes, the church goes. And if the church goes, the mission of God fails. God's design to keep the mission moving forward is the local church. And Paul knew that. That's why on his first missionary journey, he went and he saw people saved, but he saw them saved into the church. He went and he established local churches everywhere he went. And he believed so firmly in the work of the local church. And I I think there's some reasons why. One is this, his theology about the church was accurate. It was right. Paul understood that the church was the bride of Jesus Christ. It was precious to him. Paul understood that the church was the one new man that God was creating to continue to advance and move forward the mission of Jesus Christ. Paul understood that this was the body of Christ, that beautiful metaphor that he gives to us in 1 Corinthians, that this is the place where Christians grow and are strengthened, they're mobilized, and then they're dispatched into the world to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. And I think we see, even in this very first verse, a reminder of Paul's deep love for the church, don't we? And and the church, we know this, the church is not just brick and mortar, amen? The church is made up of people, the redeemed of God. And here we see the heart, look, I love that. Let us return, remember Barnabas? Barnabas, his partner in ministry, they they had traversed, you know, through the Troas mountain pass together. They had gone through so much together. Their hearts were so entwined on the mission together. And they look at each other and they say, hey, let's go back. Remember those brothers and sisters in Christ? We, We saw them give their lives to Christ. We spent time investing in them, pouring ourselves into them. I wonder how they're doing. Let's go back, let's, let's see how they're doing. It's such a, a precious insight in the heart of the apostle Paul. He looks at the church and he sees that God-ordained, God-designed, God-indwelling institution that would equip believers for the work of the ministry. 
And I just, I want to show you this verse. It's later on. We're going to study it when we get there in Acts eventually. Acts 20, verse 28. Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders, and, and I love what he says to them. Again, just catch the, the sense of his heart here. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Look at this, look at this. To care for the church. Whose church is this? Of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Paul saw the church as something that was so precious to God because God gave his very son to purchase the church. He he knew what was at stake. And I love, we see that in this very first verse, verse, Paul's heart for the church. And I think cultivating a growing love for the church is instrumental in, in having that missionary mindset. And so I wanna ask the question as we look at this, can we learn some things how can we be cultivating a growing love for the church? And I want to just give you three, three quick things. The first is this, being with God's people. You want to cultivate a growing love for the church? It requires first being with God's people. And this is you know, just drawing from the context and drawing from uh, the, the implications of what we've seen in the life of Paul. But Paul was always with the people of God. He just was. His life revolved around the local church and it revolved around the global church. He just always wanted to be around the people of God. And when he was around unbelievers, guess what his desire was? That they become a part of the people of God. It's just his heart for people. Being with God's people was a priority for Paul. And, and what, what I mean by that is this. I think we can glean from this verse. You know, you see the, the heart of Paul to go back and see the brothers. There's an intimacy in the relationship there. There's an attachment to people. That there wasn't surface level involvement with people. This was a deep-seated relationship. He longed for these people because he knew these people. And I just would encourage you, you know, it's hard to love the church and it's hard to truly be with God's people if we're not willing to get to know God's people. There are so many people who sit on the fringe of the church and even the relationships that they have tend to be superficial. And I just want to encourage you this morning that one of the ways that you can have a growing heart for the church is to get yourself into relationships in the church. The early church often found themselves together, Acts 2.42, we saw that last year, they met all the time, they met in homes and in temples. In other words, they met in small group ministry and they met in the local church gathering together to worship the Lord. They just had an active sense of community and relationships and involvement. And being with one another was crucial, they saw this, to their health and to their effectiveness in church. This is so true for us. Our health and our effectiveness as Christians and our health and effectiveness as a local church is truly dependent upon the depth of relationships that we have in this place. We live in a time when church is often viewed as being optional, unimportant, and sometimes really inconsequential to our lives. That's the way many Christians live. And by the way, this was a problem even in the life of the early church. Early on, people were beginning to say, yeah, you know what, the local church, that gathering, this local gathering, when we get together on Sundays, it's really not that important and there are things that can take a precedent over that in my life. In fact, look at what the author of Hebrews writes to the church. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25 on the screen behind me there. He says this, he says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting, here it is, to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. 
it was a necessity for the people to be together so that they could stir one another up, they could encourage one another in the Lord. We can press on together. This verse reminds us the importance of the local gathering. So I just wanna ask you this morning, is it a priority in your life to be a part of the local gathering of believers? Is it a priority in your life to be in deep, meaningful relationships with the body of Christ where God has placed you within the context of the local church? I look at the Apostle Paul and I can say that this was a priority for him. You know, church wasn't something, an, it wasn't just an add-on to his calendar. You know, he didn't kind of schedule his, his week and look at all the different things going on and then go, oh yeah, we gotta make sure church is somewhere on there too. Don't forget about church. I think it was the exact opposite and this is what I wanna commend to you and maybe to your families is that church was the center of his week. Church was the center of his calendar. In other words, everything else was scheduled around this concept the local church. That doesn't mean you can't have other things going on in your life and, and all of that. I just want you to see how important the local church was. Being with God's people was instrumental to the health and effectiveness of your spiritual life in the church. Secondly, notice this, following up with God's people. Being with God's people is essential, but if you really wanna grow and cultivate a love for God's people, there needs to be a sense of follow up. You know, I'm reminded of the heart of Paul. It wasn't simply go, to just go and to see people confess Jesus Christ as Lord, it was to see them grow in their relationship with the Lord. And so many of us stop short on just making sure we evangelize somebody and we're less intent on seeing that relationship be cultivated and developed. Now this is important because this requires that we take our eyes off of self and place them onto others. You see, here's the problem that most of us encounter in our lives. A preoccupation with self grows a love of self, okay? A preoccupation with self grows a love of self and the opposite is also true. A preoccupation with others grows a love for others. And I love Paul, Paul is just looking at others, he's so concerned about how they're doing, and I just, I mean, you just get the sense, let's go and see how they are. Cultivating a love for others means you not only know, here's what's important, listen, in relationships, you not only know what's going on in people's lives, you care enough to follow up with them and see how they're doing in those areas. You take the time to check in. I, I, I bumped into somebody that I hadn't seen in, in a, a couple of months, and the last time I was with them, I had a chance, they, they asked me very specifically, Ian, how are you doing? And you know, you know those relationships where they don't let you off the hook either? They're like, no, 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 how are you really doing? And I shared my heart, and I shared some of the things I was struggling with, and some of the areas that the, you know, the Lord was convicting me, and where I wanted to grow, and some things going on, and, 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 and this, this brother in Christ said, I saw this brother this two months ago. I saw him recently this past week, and he looked at me and said, hey, I just want you to know, Ian, how are you doing? I've been praying for you, and he listed the very specific things that I had shared with him earlier, like two months ago. I, honestly, I had forgotten I'd even shared them with him. He just, want, he just said, I just want to let you know I've been praying for you in these areas, and can I just ask you a question? Like, how are those, how is that going right now? Like, what's, what's happening there? And I, can I just tell you how meaningful that was to me? It, it, it really impacted my heart and it just reminded me of the importance of if we really care for people, we really care about what's going on in their lives and you know, we don't give those superficial answers like, yeah, 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 I'll pray for you and then we just totally forget and we never bring it to mind, we never even bring it to the Lord and just how important is it for us? Listen, how meaningful is it when people look at you and they say, I remember you, what you shared, I've actually been praying. How more important when people stop with you in the moment and say, let me pray for you right now 
just that sense of follow-up, it just expresses so much love and so much care. It's one of those ways that we get our eyes off of ourselves. And maybe I can just ask you a question this morning. Is there anybody on your heart that you need to follow up with this morning? Is there anybody that God is laying on your heart that you just need to call and encourage? You need to call and say, hey, I've been thinking about you, I've been praying about you, I remember you shared this with me. And How important and how meaningful might that be for them even this day? Thirdly, notice this, you want to cultivate a love for people and for the body of Christ, be investing in God's people. And, and again, this is the broader context, but also I want to draw from verse 41 in a second, but I want you to see this. Paul was not only concerned with checking in. He wanted to make spiritual deposits. He wanted to see them growing in their love of Christ, their knowledge and understanding of Christ. This is so often Paul's prayer for the church. Look at verse 41 just really quickly. At the very end of verse 41, Esther, he says he went through Syria and Cilicia. Look at this word, look at this. Strengthening the churches. You say, what was Paul really wanting to do? Strengthen the churches. Build them up in the Lord. You cannot love truly what you're not making an investment in. What you pour yourself into is what you will inevitably love most and our hearts follow our investments you know our hearts follow our money whatever we're investing our money in tends to grab our attention tends to demonstrate our affections and even starts to grow our affections for those things you put your money in your car or your house and that's all you know your your other investment portfolio that you may have and all of a sudden you watch your heart for those things begin to grow and grow the attachment to those things and i think spiritually speaking our heart follows the investments we make in others when we are pouring into others, God has this way of expanding our hearts for them. When we care for them in that way and desire to strengthen them in the Lord, God tends to grow our love for them. And there's a difference here. Listen, I, I want you to, to see this. There's a difference in attending church and in investing in church. And some of us, we struggle with our love for other people because we're simply attenders of church and we're spectators. We come in, we sit on the bench, and you know, then we, kinda, we, we leave and it's, that's our understanding of church when God is saying, and, and, there, and then you wonder why maybe you struggle with loving the body of Christ, with really enjoying the body of Christ. And what God says is this, that's because you're not investing in the body of Christ and you need to get off of the bench and you need to throw yourself into relationships, you need to throw yourself into ministry, and then you need to see how my, your heart grows for those things, so I want to encourage you, uh, don't be just attending, be investing. Paul was the investor in the church of Jesus Christ. I mean, he gave everything, blood, sweat, and tears, literally for the church of Jesus Christ. And as a result, we see the love of the church expanding and expanding. You see, cultivating a ministry mindset involves, secondly, uh, I need a growing commitment to the mission a growing commitment to the mission. Notice verses 37 through 41 with me. This is such an interesting part of the text. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not, and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. 
This is, this is so fascinating to think about. Remember, Paul and Barnabas had been through so much together. I mean, we're talking about spiritual brotherhood that few of us can even imagine. The trials, the tribulation, the commitment, the perseverance that they had gone through together. How their hearts must have been so intertwined. How they must have loved each other. And yet what we see here is that even those who love each other so deeply, even in the Lord, can disagree so vehemently. As they prepare to grow, they have this massive disagreement, and the disagreement is over John Mark. Remember John Mark? John Mark is the cousin of Barnabas. Maybe this is why Barnabas wanted him so badly, wanted to defend him so badly. He was the cousin of Barnabas, and he had gone with them on the first missionary journey, but when everything began to go kind of to fall apart when it began to, be, began to become chaotic. You know, maybe they got through the Taurus Mountains and John Mark looked at the mission and said, this is way too much for me to handle. I didn't sign up for this. And he bailed on them. The issue here is over commitment. Commitment to the mission. The success of the mission. And we can understand Paul's concern, can't we? I mean, can't you sympathize a little bit with Paul? I mean, Paul wants to, uh, to move the ball forward and all of a sudden he's beginning, here's Barnabas, he's like, hey, hey, Paul, I got this great idea. I think we should take John Mark with us again. And Paul's like, are you kidding me? Do you remember what he did? I mean, he slowed us down, Barnabas. We had to spend all this time trying to convince him that God was calling him to this, and he wouldn't budge. I mean, he, he crawled back home. He couldn't handle it, and now you want to take him again? I mean, what if we face more beatings, more persecution, more stonings? I mean, what if they threaten our lives? What if we get robbed again? I mean, what, what if? I don't have time for this, Barnabas. I need somebody who's gonna be faithful. I need somebody who's committed to the mission, who's willing to take the hard knocks. Barnabas, can't you sympathize with Barnabas' heart? But Paul, Paul, I mean, can we give the guy another shot? I mean, I, look, look. He's not, he, he's, he, he wasn't what we needed, then maybe he'll be what we need now. Maybe he'll step up to the plate, but, but we'll never know, Paul, unless we give it a shot. And, and what we see here is this. It says that a sharp disagreement, in other words, this is a heated, heated discussion that happened. I mean, this is just going at it with each other. And I just, I want you to see this. There's a great principle we can learn from this. Look, even good and godly Christians can disagree. Even good and godly Christians can have passionate disagreements. What I do believe is important to understand is that they didn't leave this, this argument angry with one another, okay? They didn't leave this argument um, in a place of sin. It was an amicable split on their part, and both, look, he, he, some of us are we're saying, well, well, who was right? <laughs> I'll, I'll give you my opinion if you want it. I'll give it if you don't. Uh, <laughs> both. I think both are right. I, I don't think, uh, the, and you know what, here's, we gotta be really careful. The, the text doesn't explicitly tell us who was right and who was wrong. But, but my sense is I read this and I've thought and I've prayed about this and there's, de there's debate, by the way, in commentaries. It's like, well, Paul was sinful and can you believe he wouldn't give him a second shot? And this is just a demonstration of the weakness of the apostle Paul and his own sinful behavior. I'm like, what? He's not condemned in any way here. 
Other people think Barnabas. Barnabas was in sin. I mean, Paul was now officially over him in the Lord. He was the authority, and how dare he not submit to the apostle Paul? It doesn't say that. I, I just think as we look at this, we can say that both had valid points and both had strong convictions. Both wouldn't budge. And sometimes we can be stubbornly sinful. Yes, this is not an excuse to be stubbornly sinful, okay? Hear that. It is not. If we're stubbornly sinful, shame on us. But sometimes we need to embrace this, that there are equally valid opinions and legitimately different ways of going about things. And I think that's okay. We don't always agree, and we can even disagree passionately, and Paul and Barnabas, they disagree amicably, and God uses this. I think there's a sense in which maybe Satan wanted to get in and divide these guys, thinking, huh, I'll destroy this mission, and and then God looks at it and he laughs. (laughs) You know, what Satan tries to divide, God looks at as an opportunity to multiply. Right, instead of one missionary team, now we got two. You can see, just listen, you can see the providence and the sovereignty of God in this moving and directing. The point I want to make is this for you and I, um, that we all have a part to play. We all have a part to play in the mission of God, and sometimes God's calling on our lives can look slightly different. The, The general calling to make disciples is the same, but the way that happens, the way it's fleshed out, the direction we go in this life, that can often look very differently. God has gifted us differently. God has even given us different personalities that are useful uh, for different endeavors and even different callings. There are characteristics, I think, as we look at this text, of each man that can help us grow our commitment to the mission. And you'll notice there are four individuals here at play. I love that they're always paired up. The missionary teams are always going out in pairs. You have Barnabas who takes John Mark and they head off together. And then you have Paul and Silas. And I just want to consider each of these figures and and think about what we can learn and how we can grow in our commitment to the mission. First, uh, on the screen behind me, you'll see this. Paul, a press forward with urgency. You want greater commitment to the mission, you just look at the Apostle Paul and you, you grasp the sense of urgency in the mission. You see that he is willing to go to great lengths to keep moving the ball forward. Paul has little time to waste with trivialities. He, he is not consumed with fleeting temporal things. He is all about getting the work done, getting after it. I love that about Paul. And it's so hard for us. Isn't that something we can all learn from? Because we are so easily distracted, we're so easily pulled into entertainment and and the things of this world and things of this life and the distractions all around us. And Paul's just like, let's get after it. Paul, uh, look, Paul has an incredibly, I think, strong personality. He's gifted with a great leadership qualities. And it's important for us to understand that sometimes these personalities, uh, we like to label sometimes people with different personalities as sinful. This is not an excuse. Sometimes our personalities have sinful elements that we need to deal with. But sometimes, sometimes our personalities are, are actually useful to God. And I think Paul's personality, he was softened by the Spirit of God. He was used greatly by God. Paul had this tenacious personality. I mean, who else could get beaten like him and keep walking back into cities? Some of the church's greatest leaders have been strong personalities. Martin Luther, in a famous self-evaluation, said this, listen to this. He said, I am rough, boisterous, stormy, and altogether warlike, fighting against innumerable monsters and devils. I am born for the removing of stumps and stones, cutting away thistles and thorns, and clearing wild forests. I'm glad he could say that about himself. I think Paul was like that, wasn't he? 
mean, he was born for this. He was born to blaze a trail, and not all of us are born for that. Some of us are more like Barnabas. And we look at Barnabas, here's what we can learn from him. Barnabas, draw near with compassion. And Barnabas was just this, I mean, we see all throughout the book of Acts, the scriptures just relate, what a, a really kind-hearted, gentle, I mean, his name means encourager. I mean, I mean, it's so suitable to who he was as an individual. His calling and personality were, were one and the same as Paul's in one sense, and yet very different. His ministry was slightly different than Paul's. It was slightly nuanced, and Paul was compassionate. Paul was a gracious man, but here we see just the heart of compassion in Barnabas. And with his ministry, I mean, he had more time to work with and help to restore John Mark. He had a heart for John Mark. He had a heart for the broken. He had a heart for those who had fallen and failed. And Paul, listen, Paul was trying to blaze the trail. Barnabas wanted to restore. Both of those things are awesome. But at this point, in, in, in the direction of this ministry, they weren't compatible. It wasn't the right fit together right now. And so that's why Barnabas takes John Mark. And you want to know what we see throughout Scripture? Barnabas must have been an incredible mentor, a restorer, an encourager, because he takes John Mark, and he does something marvelous with him. Listen, by the grace of God and through the power of the Spirit of God. He takes this broken man, and we see John Mark, a completely different person by the end of Paul's life, and I'll get to that in a second, but some of us, listen, some of us need to move forward with urgency. Some of us need to embrace more of this, draw near with compassion. But when we look next, look at John Mark. Get up with resilience. I, I, I know Paul's pretty upset with John Mark, and I think he has every right to be. The guy hasn't proven himself faithful, but I, I, I kind of like John Mark. I, mean, I kind of like John Mark because I think I can relate to John Mark really well. I mean, here's a guy who has failed and fallen flat on his face. I, I mean, in a public way that is recorded for all eternity, okay? How many of us would want our biggest sins recorded for all of eternity? For everybody to read and go, oh, John Mark. And yet here he is. Look at what, what, what we see in John Mark, though, is so, so important. He fails so miserably but he gets up so quickly. He wanted another chance. He didn't want to be sidelined for the rest of his life. He wanted to be useful to God. And he went down hard, but he got back up quickly. And I was struck, I was struck. I, I think so many of us fall into this category that when we fall down, when we're humiliated by our sin, when we're living in shame, we feel like this, don't we? God, I can never be useful to you again. And I'll never be back to where I was. I'll never have the same kind of influ influence. I'll never be able to bring you glory in the same way. We were at a conference this past week and after one of the sessions I was walking out and I saw a, a guy that I knew and, and he's sitting near the back and, and he was just weeping. I, I mean, and he was in ministry before in, in a, I'm not a pastoral role, but he was in ministry in, in a church and he wasn't any longer and he was there. He was sitting at the back and I'm telling you, just weeping and be a big guy bawling his eyes out. And I just, I sat with him and I just, I said, what's going on? And he, and he just could hardly get any words out and he, and he just looked at me, just tears in his eyes and he put his head down and he just, he said, I just wonder if God could ever use me again. I just, I just think so many of us feel like that. 
And John Mark serves for us as, as an example of one who can fall really hard, but listen, can still be greatly useful to the Lord. Think David who fell so mightily and then yet who was restored so greatly. Think Peter who betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ three times and then was used by God after Jesus restored him through that repentance and forgiveness and the grace that was lavished upon him. He rose him up and he made him one of the pillars of the church of Jesus Christ. I mean, what hope there is for you and I who fall, who have fallen, who are falling, and who will fall. How great is our God that he can take us and restore us. You are still useful. In fact, it's so amazing. I mean, Mark would become the the gospel writer. Mark, you ever heard of that? Mark would become a close contemporary and associate of the apostle Peter. He would travel with him to where they think he got most of the content to write the gospel of Mark. And at the end of Paul's life, when he is in prison and everybody had abandoned him, you want to know who Paul asks for? He says, bring me Mark for he is useful to me. Somewhere along the line, Barnabas had worked with him and God had been working in him and he had changed. He was no longer an unfaithful servant. He had proven faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lastly, let's look at Silas quickly. Step out with preparation. Silas is an interesting man. I mean, what we know of him just tells us that he was a a remarkably prepared man, suitable for ministry. The apostle Paul, it says, chose him specifically. You see that there in verse 40? Paul chose him. Paul could have had his pick of the litter for his ministry partner, and he says, I choose Silas. He sees something in this man that is so valuable, that is so ready to be used by God. Uh, Silas was a Jew. Think about how useful that would be, Paul always went first to the synagogues and then he went to the Gentiles. How useful is it to have a a Jew with you? He was a Roman citizen like the Apostle Paul. He would have been afforded all of the same rights and legal status as the Apostle Paul. So important branching out into the Roman world. He was a prophet, the Word of God tells us in chapter 15, verse 32. You're going to Uh, encourage people and strengthen them in the Lord. Pretty good to have a prophet with you, I'd say. Uh, He spoke Greek. Going out in the Greek-speaking world, this would have been an invaluable resource. And I want you to see this. Look, God chooses the right people for the right jobs. He always does. I had another conversation with someone this week in this church, and I've had this conversation with so many, and it just encourages my heart every time. Uh, I'll often have conversations with somebody who will say to me, look, I want to be more useful to God. I want to be more prepared. And they'll just say, what can I do to be more prepared? What can I read? What classes can I take that are going to help prepare me for ministry? That is such an encouragement. I love the heart of so many people in this church who just long to be more prepared so they can be more useful to God. And I don't know uh, what Silas's upbringing was like. I just know this. He was a man who was well prepared, who sought the things of the Lord, and God was using him mightily. Paul chose him because of his character. Chapter 15, 22 says he was one of the leaders in the church. He was a man of character, obviously. He wouldn't have been a leader if he wasn't a man of godly character, committed to the things of the Lord. He was a man of great giftedness as a prophet. And he was a man, listen, here's what was important to Paul, of proven faithfulness. Silas was one of the guys who was sent with Paul back to the Antioch church to share with them the letter that the council had agreed upon. 
And then he, he encouraged the brothers in the Lord and he, he would prophesy, he used his gifts to build them up. And I think Paul had seen this man's usefulness. He had seen this man's faithfulness and he saw that and he said, that's the guy I want on my side. That's the guy I want on my team. And I think Silas is a reminder to us, listen, that we need to step out with preparation. We need to seek preparation, but when we are prepared by the Lord, we need to step out in faith. And I just encourage you, maybe from the life of Silas, from what, we've, what we know, is it's important to be faithful in the small things so that we can be used in the greater. Just be faithful. Be faithful where God has you. Be faithful with your involvement. Be faithful with your service. Keep, keep pressing in, getting prepared, and watch how God uses you as a faithful servant of Jesus Christ. It should be of such great comfort to us that God chooses the right people for the right jobs. And make no mistake about it, God always chooses to use people who are deeply committed to the mission. He always does. In verse 41, again, we're reminded that as they went their separate ways, they were committed to strengthening the churches. Third, you want to be cultivating a ministry mindset, just embrace this. I need a growing desire to multiply myself. I need a growing desire to multiply myself. Paul goes back to Derbe here. Look at verse 1 of chapter 16. He came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. And Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went out on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Paul goes back to Derbe and Lystra and uh, Timothy and his mom were likely, and his grandmother Eunice, by the way, and Lois, his mom and, and grandmother uh, Lois, uh, were likely saved under the ministry of the Apostle Paul and his first, min- his first missionary journey. What we see here is that uh, Timothy had a good reputation. He was thought well of by people. And it's likely people um, wonder how old Timothy was. You know, Paul writes to Timothy later on as the pastor of the church in Ephesus, and he says, don't let anybody look down on you because you are young. Well, that's quite a ways away from where we're at right here. The best estimates say that Timothy was likely between the ages of 16 and 25 years old when Paul scoops him up and brings him under his wing. And that's a really, really big deal. I mean, he's already a, a, a young man of great maturity. He's already going to be useful to the Lord. And Paul sees some things in this man, and he sees some potential in this young man that this is gonna be a useful, useful individual for the kingdom of God and for the, the, the ongoing work of the ministry. And so he grabs him, and you say, well, well is that a really big deal? R- remember the last time that Paul was here in this city? This is the plan, the last image that Timothy's mother and grandmother had of Paul was likely bruised, bloody, staggering into the city because he had been stoned to death and left out on a garbage heap. Hey moms, uh, how many of you want your children to go on that missionary journey? And this is a really big deal that they let him go on this. And it just demonstrates, I think, the, 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 the humility and the, the courage and the willingness to be used by God. And these are all things that Paul looked at and said, this, this is useful. He's a faithful young man. He's available for the work of the ministry. He's teachable and moldable. 
He sees an opportunity, Paul does, to increase the spread of the gospel and the growth and the maturity of the church. And so he grabs this young man and he commits to pouring his life into him. He commits to multiplying himself, to reproducing himself in this young man's life. Adding Timothy, listen, here's what you need to understand. Adding Timothy and developing Timothy meant greater impact for the church as a whole. Timothy would end up playing a crucial role in Paul's life, eventually becoming his right-hand man. He would become a pastor in some of the major churches in the area, fighting off false teachers, training up the people of God. He was so dear to the Apostle Paul. You talk about how how relationships are forged and how these these, investments can be made. Paul looked at Timothy and he said, this is my spiritual son. It's likely at this point that the text gives us an indicator that though Timothy's mother was alive, his father, being a Greek, was likely dead. The tense there is a past tense. In other words, it's speaking of him as if you know, he's no longer there. So Paul takes him under the wing and he becomes a spiritual father. And a couple of verses, look at, look at 1 Corinthians 4, 17 on the screen behind me. It says this, this is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved, look at this, I love this, and faithful child in the Lord to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. You know, bringing him alongside him, bringing him with him on this journey was an opportunity for him to pour into this young man in the same way that Jesus poured into his disciples. Come with me, watch me, let's sit down and discuss it afterwards. Let's talk about why I did it this way. Let's talk about how we can grow in this and how we can do it differently. 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 2 says this, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith. I mean, he was so trained up and so ready that Paul was willing to send him now on his own at different points in his life and ministry. He was so prepared by the investments made by others, by Paul specifically in his life. Again, at this conference I was just at, I had the opportunity to run into a young man, or not run into, we planned to meet, and it was, it was brief, but he was a young man who got saved at this church, and, and through the influence of who is now his wife, who was kind of on the verge of dating her at the time, she had been sharing Christ, she had given him a book, uh, Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ, and I remember you know, he, he, him wanting to come in, and he had come to church a couple times, he came in and sat in my office, and he had read this book, it had about a thousand sticky notes in it, and he just, you know, I'm like, I'm not sure we have time to discuss all of this, but we sat, I just, I just remember very fondly him working through the things of the Christian faith and eventually coming to the place where he committed himself to the Lord. And, and listen, in the grace of God, being paired up, a, a, a gentleman in our church took him under his wing and discipled him and poured his life into him and cared for him and taught him some of the foundational aspects of the faith. And as I saw this young man, my heart was so encouraged. I'm asking him how he's doing. He's, he's at a different Harvest Church because he moved and, and he's talking about how he's been so involved from the very beginning of being there and now God is opening up up doors and he's been asked to come and help start the youth group in the church and I'm just looking at this going like three years ago I mean you didn't even know Jesus Christ I'm just I'm just thankful I'm thankful for the investments people are willing to make in the lives of others and I just want to encourage you these investments are not a waste of time pouring yourself out into somebody is not a waste of time and what you need to see is this it provides health and strength and stability for the church of Jesus Christ and it allows the church the infrastructure necessary to continue to go out and make disciples we need this multiplication of disciples happening 
You need to be looking at who you can be pouring yourself into, bringing under your wing, right? Investing in in significant ways and believing that God will take them and by faith he will use them. Being both Jew and Greek would give Timothy, by the way, access to both worlds. I mean, Paul saw this as a just incredible opportunity. But there was a bit of a problem. Do you notice what happens in the text there? Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew his father was a Greek. In other words, him being half Jewish, he was viewed as Jewish, but the Jewish people would have looked at him as an uncircumcised Jew, and they would have said, he's abandoned his Jewish roots. He doesn't care about the Jewish people. And so this would have been an unnecessary stumbling block to reaching the Jews, something that didn't need to hinder the ministry of Paul. And, and I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, wait a second, doesn't this conflict with the very message that Paul has just fought for, that you don't need to be circumcised to be saved, that you don't need to keep the law to be saved? I mean, can you imagine the scene? Remember, Paul was going around to these different cities and he was actually delivering the message, the verdict from the council. And Paul you know, gathers everybody together as he gets here and he says, hey guys, I just, wanna rem- I just wanna encourage you. We had this big meeting and everybody decided that none of you guys have to get circumcised except for you. Can you imagine Timothy, what? It's probably even higher. <laughs> like, but, but you just need to understand, this, this, is not, this is not the same thing that Paul was fighting against. This is not circumcision and law keeping to be saved. This is an expression of the other side of that letter, which is this, get rid of any offense that would be a stumbling block, right? Don't do anything that would hinder the mission going forward. And if there's a liberty that you can give up for the cause of Christ, give it up and let's see how God wins people to himself. You know, Paul, Paul exemplified this in his own ministry. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, we we saw it last week, I become all things to all men so that I may win some, right? This is his heart. I'll give up whatever I have to. And so he looks at Timothy and he says, hey, hey, here's here's a stumbling block and we want to remove the stumbling block. And I love Timothy, what a humble, humble guy. Humble. Okay, whatever's necessary. Whatever it takes, I just, all I care about is seeing people come to know Jesus Christ. I'll give up anything as required of me. I, I just think that Paul exemplified this. He probably demonstrated this to Timothy through his life and ministry. And so Timothy so easily said, I, I want to be like you, Paul. I want to do what you're doing. I see how God's blessing you and the favor upon your life and ministry. And Timothy removed the stumbling block. John Stott says that what was unnecessary for acceptance with God was advisable for acceptance by some human beings. It's a wisdom issue. Did he have to do it? No, he didn't. He did not have to. He chose to. Let me just ask you, what might you need to give up to be more useful to God? Maybe it's it's a liberty you don't even think of. Maybe it's something that's not necessarily offensive to somebody. It's just a stumbling block. It's a hindrance. It's an obstacle to you reaching people. Maybe it's what you do with your time. Maybe it's your money and your resources. Maybe God is, is calling you to give up something to be more useful to him. And the goal being, as I said, look at verse four and five, and they went on their way through the cities and they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. They kept on spreading it wherever they went, wherever there was a church, 
And look at the result, and I, I think this is a result not only of the message they brought, it's a result of their ministry, and it is a result, I believe, of the multiplication ministry of the apostle Paul. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. I truly believe that a commitment to multiplying ourselves will lead to a strengthening of the faith of others because, listen, this is not a one-man show, right? The life and ministry is not one person's responsibility. It is everybody's responsibility in the church of Jesus Christ. Training others to strengthen and grow the church is a requirement of a healthy church. In fact, Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 2, do we have it there? To Timothy, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You see, just keep on investing and pouring in and raising people up who will take that and keep on doing the same. And I mean, we talk about this all the time. This is the heartbeat of our church. I've said this before and I'll say it again. Every one of us needs a Paul. We need somebody who's gonna pour and invest into us. Every one of us needs a Timothy, somebody that we could be investing in. And all of us, Maybe not at this juncture, but we all need a Barnabas too, don't we? To encourage us. And cultivating a missionary mindset also means this. I need a growing sensitivity to God's leading. I need a growing sensitivity to God's leading. Verses 6 through 10, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. This is, again, just a fascinating display of God's direction and leading in their lives, and I think it reminds us that we too need a growing sensitivity to how God leads in our lives. It's so amazing just to see how God is directing their steps. He's directing their their path so clearly. I, I want you to notice here that Paul actually had other plans. Paul thought he knew where he was supposed to go. He kept on trying to go to different places and it kept on, he kept on being prevented. He tried to go west into Asia and God wouldn't let him. They attempted to go to Bithynia north and the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. They keep running into roadblocks. You ever had that experience? driving a car, <laughs> their HS GPS keeps rerouting them. You'll catch that in a second. It's Holy Spirit. <laughs> he just keeps stopping them and moving them. It's, I wonder if Paul thought maybe, maybe he was using the wrong app. He was on Apple Maps instead of Google Maps or something. It's like, something's wrong. Why can't we go here? Rerouting, rerouting, you know. That's, yeah, some of you know. You know, sometimes God leads us by restraining us. He leads us by preventing us. We call this closed doors, right? God will close doors and he will not make something possible or he'll make something obvious so that it's not the right direction. It's just, again, another reminder that what Proverbs says, a man may plan his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. And by the way, we don't know how God closed these doors. Did you notice that? 
We don't know if it was, it was somehow related to the Spirit of God stirring their hearts. We don't know if it was something physical, like illness. Some people believe it's illness that was preventing Paul. Paul struggled with illness that, that really was a distraction in his ministry. And, and it's, it's, they think that because look at verse 10. You'll notice there, and when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we, catch that word we. This is the first time there's a switch in the pronouns. This indicates that this is the time where Luke, the writer of this book, joins the ministry team. And Luke was a physician. Some believe that this was his time to join up because Paul was struggling with sudden illness that was preventing him from doing things. And we, we don't know if God used prophets to direct them. We don't know if it was persecution. We don't know if it was weather patterns. We have no clue how God prevented them from going to these places. What we do know was that God was pressing them exactly where they needed to be. And with nowhere else to turn, here's what we see. They came down to Troas a port on the Aegean Sea. And you say, why, why was God moving them here? Every other direction Paul could go, he would end up being landlocked. And so God is moving them along this very specific and strategic path to get them to this little port city called Troas, which would launch them, here it is, here it is, launch them to Europe out of Asia into Europe. It's just another way that God is saying, don't you see, I want my gospel to go to the nations. Keep moving forward, keep pressing on further and further and further. It's really beautiful how God is leading here. Like, you wanna know how God, how God leads us some, so often? Just keep moving, okay? That's what we can learn from the Apostle Paul. Right? However God determines the lead, just keep moving, keep going somewhere. I fear that so many people uh, sit around waiting for God to tell them, you know, waiting for a message to drop out of the sky. God. Do this, you know, do this or do this or don't do this. And look, it's hard to steer a parked car, isn't it? But you get that hunk of metal moving, it can steer, be steered anywhere you want it to go. Paul kept moving. That's what I love about Paul. He's so tenacious. Well, it blocked off here, fine. I'll try going this way. Blocked off here, fine. I'll keep going this way. And eventually, you're getting on the path, right? Keep moving. Keep being faithful. And I just, I love this because Paul kept moving because he believed so firmly in the sovereignty of God. He just kept trusting the Lord and God kept steering him where he wanted to be. And in verse nine through 10, we see this fascinating, you know, God's leading in certain ways, but all of a sudden he crystallizes his will for Paul. You'll notice what it says in verse nine, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. That's pretty clear. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he says, we sought to go into Macedonia, uh, this word is so important, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. The, the word concluding literally means to bring together or to knit together. In, in other words, it was like all of a sudden there was this fuzziness as how the plan of God was fitting together. And all of a sudden in this one moment, God makes it so crystal clear and it's just like, bam, that's it. That's how God has been directing. It means this, that there was some time in the life of the Apostle Paul and his ministry team spent unsure of what God was doing and where he was leading. Sound familiar to you? Again, just another reminder that God calls us to obey even when it's not our plan. Even when we don't understand why, where, how. 
God wants our unquestioned obedience. When he speaks, he expects immediate obedience. Let me say that again. When he speaks, he expects immediate obedience. Did you catch that? Paul hears from God. He sees the vision. It's so crystal clear. And immediately Paul moves on it. So important for us. Look, we're likely not going to get a vision, a voice from heaven. But as Peter said, we have something more sure. We have the prophetic word of God. We have God's revelation and he guides and directs us. It is sufficient. He leads us through his word. And I, I love that there is in the life and ministry of Paul a firm resolution to trust God, to trust God when they aren't sure and an even firmer resolution when they are. When God's word speaks to you, are you quick to obey? We tell our kids this all the time. Delayed obedience is, parents, I can hear whispers, disobedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. G. Campbell Morgan, quote on screen, says this. He says, be willing to go not where I may choose, even by my love of the Lord, but where I am driven by the Lord's command. Rest in the Lord in the darkness and know that God's shortest way to Troas may be athwart our inclinations and purposes. I love this line. Listen, it is better to go to Troas with God than anywhere else without him. When we choose disobedience, we choose to lose the blessing and presence of God, the favor of God. But when we choose the hard path of obedience, we're guaranteed this, we do not go it alone. Maybe God is convicting you. Maybe following God is really hard for you right now. Maybe being obedient is really challenging for you and you've been delaying. Maybe you've been avoiding. Maybe you've been resisting or maybe you've been outright defying God in your life. You know how God has been leading you. You know the sin that he's calling you to deal with. You know the person he's calling you to reconcile with. You know the person he's calling you to witness to. I just wonder if you would hear the word of God today. When God's word is clear, you need to obey right away. And would you just confess that to him today? And by God's grace, would you choose obedience today? And lastly, we're going to close with this, and and it's going to lead us into communion. It's going to be a short point, but you want to cultivate a ministry or a missions mindset, it means this, I need a growing love for the lost. And I just want to draw upon verse 9 and 10 for a second, and I just want you to see and hear what Paul heard. He sees this man standing, and he's, he's clearly a Macedonian. He's from Macedonia. But I want you to hear the plea of this man. Come over and help us. Obedience drove the apostle Paul, but you need to see the urgency is also driven by what is said right here in this vision. Paul is hearing a man crying out to him, come and help us, come and help us. Can you imagine you saw a child drowning in the water, calling out for help, and you stood by and did nothing? Oh, that we would see people not as they appear, but as they truly are. That we would see people not as being content and satisfied and filled with hope, but we would see them as being lost and desperate in need of help. Headed towards judgment. 
And that we would see that God has chosen us to help. Would you see that there? When he hears the word help us, Paul concludes we need to go there. How do we help them? How do we help them? We preach to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. We give them the only help that is necessary to save their souls. Many of you are familiar with the movie Schindler's List and based on a book and a true account of Oscar Schindler. He's an ethnic German businessman. He saved over a thousand Jews by employing them in his factory during the Holocaust. And for many people, including the Jews he saved, there was kind of an enigma. People always ask the question, what was his motivation? Why did he do this? One of the most common sentiments has been, I don't know why he did it. Why did he spend so much money? Four million francs. Why did he spend so much energy? Why did he risk his life to save so many from the horrors of the Holocaust? In 1964, an interview, standing in front of his dingy apartment in West Germany, Schindler for once commented on what he did. He said, the persecution of Jews in occupied Poland meant that we could see horror emerging gradually in many ways. And in 1939, they were forced to wear Jewish stars and people were herded and shut up in ghettos. Then in the years 41 and 42, there was plenty of public evidence of pure sadism. With people behaving like pigs, I felt the Jews were being destroyed. I had to help them. There was no choice. But there was a choice. Not everybody did what he did. Not everybody had the same mindset as him. And would that the reality, listen, of eternal separation from God and eternal suffering for sin drive us with urgency to say, I had to help them. There was no choice. My prayer is that some of you today would see what God has done for you. There was no distance that he was not willing to travel. There was no price he was not willing to pay. He came from heaven to earth. And he came with the precious blood of his own son. Why? For God so loved the world. You must recognize this morning your need for help, though. And like this Macedonian, you need to call out and say, come and help me. And in the cross, you can see that God did exactly that. He died for you. He paid the price for you. And he rose victorious for you. Love for the lost comes only from a deeper love and affection for Jesus Christ. It's not something we can manufacture or stir up. Love for Jesus comes when we are reminded that God, listen, God made a choice to come and rescue us. We were the helpless. Amen? We were the needy. We were the lost in a foreign land. And God brought us help.